The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So we've gathered together today to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion feast. And for many of us, we've had years of tradition and of experience and teaching that allow us to immediately know what that means. We know why we do what we do. And for a lot of us, this service is one of the most powerful and glorious that we get to participate in this side of heaven. However, there are also many here today who have little or no experience to draw from. I think sometimes it's easy for us to unfairly assume knowledge. And so, when I was thinking about the Lord's Supper this week and how some people come to this, you know, brand new, or maybe or maybe for a long time they've come, but they really haven't paid close attention to what's going on, it reminded me of a time that I was in grade five, and I was playing on our school basketball team, and I, it was actually a senior basketball team, so it was meant for the grade six, seven, eights, but... Uh, I was allowed on the team because I had some friends and their, their coach, their, fr- their parents were the coaches, and so you know how that goes. Um, and so, but the problem with being grade five on a senior team is that you don't ever get to play. And so you know you go to the game just to warm the bench the entire time. And I was doing my job warming the bench, but we had learned, us bench warmers, that if we, if we wanted to, we could probably sneak in a Game Boy and we could, we could turn the volume down and play the Game Boy kind of away from the coach, and the coach was so focused on the game that we could pass that time a lot more easily. Well, something crazy happened one time. Uh, we were playing, and I was pretty deep into my game, and they, they were deep into their game, and actually they were losing by a substantial amount, and there was absolutely no way we were coming back from that kind of deficit. And so the coach called my name. <laughs> and put me in the game, and I was shocked. And then, and then, to top all that off, the very first thing that happened was the player passed the ball straight to me, and so I got it, I thought, this is my chance, I'm gonna go show the coach what I've got, and so I, I went down, dribbled down the court with, uh-oh. <laughs> it just got a little shorter today. <laughs> um, so I, I dribbled down the court, and I'm showing off this amazing poise and technique, and I go down and I do a perfect layup and give myself a little fist pump and then immediately realize that we were going the other way. <laughs> and uh, so I just scored a moment. And that's, that's the problem. That when you're, it doesn't matter if you're there. If you're there all the time but you're not really paying attention, it's easy to miss some really obvious things. And I found that in grade five. And, and maybe for some of us here, uh, we, we've been at the Lord's Supper many times, but we're still not quite sure what this is all about. And so my hope today is to spend our first few moments learning why. Why did Jesus institute the Lord's table, and why did he ordain it for, to, for it to continue in the church? And so really what we're going to do is I'm going I'm to kind of hang on my thoughts on two questions. What is the Lord's Supper all about? What's the point? What does it mean? What's it pointing to? Then the second is, what is it meant to accomplish in our lives? Why did Jesus have the church continue to do this? Why not do it once and have us just look back at it? Why is, what is it supposed to be doing today for us as believers? 
And so, I brought these questions to the Gospel accounts as Jesus prepares for and establishes the Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples. And I realized that when Jesus was doing this, he was very intentional. Every part of the service was laid out. He was carrying out a plan that he had. And I think as we come to Scripture and we learn about the Lord's Supper, it is possible to gain some clarity and some understanding of what Jesus was, was doing and what he meant for this to do in our lives as believers. And so let's begin this morning with the first question, what is the Lord's Supper all about? We're going to look to, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, and just before Jesus speaks, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus has painstakingly planned this festival meal with his disciples. He secured the room, he planned the meal, he invited the guests, and he's washed their feet as they've entered. Now Luke chapter 22, verse 15 says, And he, Jesus, said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The first thing that Jesus expresses is his great desire, his anticipation of being able to celebrate this feast with them. And it may, may be helpful for us to understand what Passover was all about for the Jews. It was the greatest of the Jewish festivals, the feasts. It was a time that they remembered and they celebrated the salvation that God had provided for them as they left slavery in Egypt. Specifically, it remembered the night when the angel of death came and, and killed all of the firstborn. But the Jews would be saved if they were to kill a spotless lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on their doorpost. And if that happened, then the angel of death would pass over the Israelite children and kill only the, the Egyptians. A lamb would die in the place of their sons. Now, you are pretty smart people, and I think you probably are understand that this is not just some crazy coincidence. But that, that all along, God had planned that this Passover feast would not only point back to the salvation he provided in the past, but that it would also point forward to the time that he would provide a spotless lamb who would die for the sins of his people. But that when Christ died for the sins of his people, it was a death one time and forever. And so this meal was already a very sacred time for the Jews. And Jesus essentially says, I have passionately been anticipating being able to sit down and enjoy Passover with you before I suffer and die. Rather than fulfilling the promise of Passover and then getting rid of the feast, Jesus instead changes it completely. So now, instead of pointing forward to the coming sacrifice and deliverance of the Messiah, it would now point backward to the sacrifice that he accomplished on the cross. And then, I believe, point forward to the day that we would feast together in heaven. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22. Matthew 26 it says, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And Luke's gospel adds this de detail. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he takes the bread and then before them all, he breaks it into pieces. 
And he offers pieces of this bread to each of the disciples. And he says to them, as he gives it to them, that this is my body. And this body will be broken for you. So this bread becomes the symbol of the body of Christ. The body that would be beaten and broken on their behalf. And he issues this command, do this in remembrance of me. And what's funny here is, as he's speaking, and as he's saying, this is my body, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me, I believe the disciples had really no clue what was going on. Right? They didn't do, do this feast. Jesus, we already do this thing every year. What do you mean, remember you? You're here with us. What's the deal? See, he had told them many times that he would go and suffer and die, but they seemed to be oblivious of that. And he talked about his suffering, and all they wanted to do was correct him and, and to put that out of their minds because the Messiah they had in their minds was, would, was one who would come to rule and reign as king. But they missed Isaiah 53. They missed the suffering servant who had to die to deliver them. And so Jesus said, this is my body. It will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then in Matthew 26, verse 27, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, drink all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Just like the bread pointed to the body of Jesus, the cup, the fruit of the vine, points to the shed blood of Christ. And this time he speaks a few additional words that should have meant everything to a Jewish person who knew their Bibles in that day. He says, this is the blood of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This New Covenant is spoken of by their prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. You should check that out sometime. It says that God is going to make a new covenant that this new covenant would entirely depend on him, that it wouldn't be based on their works at all. That it would involve God giving them a new heart, coming into them and living within them. That through this covenant, he would make strangers into his own people, and that he would be their God. That people would be able to know God intimately, to have a relationship with him. That he would forgive all of their sin. And as he said, this is the blood that would seal the new covenant. They should have gone, Jeremiah 31, I get it. I get what you're doing here. You're, you're breaking this wall between us. You're allowing intimacy between God and man. You're forgiving our sin. They certainly didn't get it. But now we need to look back and we do. Because we understand that the only way that this new covenant could come to pass was if a sacrifice were made. But there was no human being that could make such sacrifice. Because every human being finds themselves to be guilty. <coughs> See, we couldn't pay for another person's sins, because before I do that, I have to deal with mine. And so the only sacrifice that could be made was the sacrifice of God himself. Of God sending his own son. Last communion service, uh, while we were out in the parking lot, Brother Andrew gave a phenomenal message on Jesus being the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
And, and it was right on. From the very beginning, we were sinners separated from God. And that all the way along the Old Testament, God provided examples of how sacrifices had to be made to cover sin. But all of those sacrifices fell far short. They only covered sin for a short period of time. But that someday, a perfect sacrifice would be made that would cover sins forever. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, strangers, sinners, can be forgiven and reconciled. We can know God. We can be in right and close fellowship with him. We can be forgiven. Now the next few verses I think are sometimes forgotten. But they're of a great encouragement to me. In Matthew 26, verse 29, it says, But I say unto you, this is Jesus still speaking, I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine henceforth until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. So this meal together, this me drinking and, and eating with you, it'll be the last time I do this with you until... Until the day that we're all together once again in my Father's kingdom, and then we'll feast. Amen. That's, that's pretty awesome. Not only does the Lord's Supper point at the suffering that Christ was about to endure, and that he now has endured for us, but it reminds us that Jesus is waiting in heaven for the day that we will all feast together. Now, I hope that promise made the disciples happy. And if it did, I think that the next statement he made in Luke's gospel would have quenched that feeling very quickly. Luke 22, verse 21, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me at the table. So right after he instituted the Lord's Supper, right after he, he says that I'm about to go and die, he starts the events in motion. He says, You know who you are, Go do what you're going to do. And so, what is this all about? What is the Lord's Supper all about? It's about Jesus taking a feast that was designed to highlight God's greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament and to alter it so that it highlighted the greatest act of deliverance for all time. Just like Passover pointed back, now the Lord's Supper points back to the cross. It's supposed to remind us of the suffering that Christ endured. And just like the Passover pointed forward to another sacrifice that would be made, now the Lord's Supper points forward to our full and final deliverance with Christ forever. What we do here, it's a symbol. And God knows that we human beings very easily forget. And so he instituted this so that we would be constantly reminded of what this is all about. Because when we look at Christendom today, when we look at so many churches, what we find is fighting. And we find people not getting along and arguing about small points of doctrine and things that don't really matter. And we find... I think not enough of people looking at the cross and worshiping Christ for who he is and what he's done, just living lives of gratitude to the king. 
And so we need this reminder in our lives. We need to put everything that's going on in our lives into the right perspective. And that perspective here is that whatever it is we're going through is temporary. But we have Christ to look forward to forever. And so, that's what it is. What is it meant to accomplish in our lives? Why do we continue this? And why do we, many believers, believe it to be of incredible importance in our life? I think it's very easy for us to slip into the motions of just slip into the habit of going through the motions, right? That we come and we know how this whole thing works and we've got our cup. I actually don't have a cup. I probably need to get one at some point. <laughs> um, but we come in and we, we go through these motions and we never really think deeply and consider and do what we're supposed to do. And so what is it we're supposed to do? Well, there's a, a danger in devaluing the importance of what we're here to do in our lives. Uh, I read a story this week of Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon was a friend of Martin Luther during the Reformation. And he spent a great deal of his time, of his life, arguing and writing books about the Lord's Supper. And he was arguing against other Protestants, and he was arguing primarily against the view of the Roman Catholic Church. And toward the end of the life, his life, it seemed like he was just getting fed up and tired of it. And actually, before he died, he said he was looking forward to his death, partly because he got to see Jesus, and partly because he didn't have to deal with other theologians anymore. <laughs> but here was a man who spent so much time, because during the Reformation, the Lord's Supper was a really big deal. In fact, many people gave their lives for their view on the Lord's Supper. Erwin Lutzer is a church historian who lives today. And he was writing about Melanchthon. He said, if Melanchthon were alive today, he might not weep because of the controversies that surround the Lord's Supper, but he might well sorrow because of our indifference to its meaning and importance. He says that there's a chance that we've just devalued the Lord's Supper. And so, I don't want you to leave today without doing these things. And we're going to look at four things, four reasons, I think, that Christ gave the Lord's Supper that he's looking to accomplish in our lives today. The first is, he wants to gather us together in unity and fellowship with himself and with one another. And I want to emphasize that last part. I think this gathering together for a long time has been taken for granted. And now we have a lot of people talking about whether it's possible to gather together online. Whether we can do like a Cyber Lord's Supper. And we had a lot of questions that came in about this. What, what is the nature of the Lord's Supper? And I think as we look at this story and then we look at Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 11, we find an emphasis on the togetherness of the Lord's Supper. He prepared this meal for all of his disciples. He gathered them together in one room, one place, and participated in the meal together. He gave the cup to his disciples. He broke the same bread for all of his disciples. And then this truth is underscored in 1 Corinthians 11. Sorry, even, even as he was going through everything that Jesus said, he was, all, he was always speaking in the plural. That this is for you all, not for you as an individual. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you have come together, but it's not for the better, for the worse. So, so even though here Paul is correcting them for 
their disunity when they come together, he's still saying, at least you've come together. Verse 18 says, for first of all, when you come together in the church. Verse 20 says, for when you come together, therefore, into one place. And then in verse 33, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for what tarry for one another. And all of his correction is emphasizing the fact that this disunity in the church and the discord and the class system and some people thinking they're better than others and some people feasting whether others went hungry, that this whole idea of the Lord's Supper was meant to put us all in the same place, unified together, in, in proper fellowship together. And if there is disunity at the Lord's Supper, there's a huge problem. And so he's gathering us together in unity and fellowship with himself, but also with one another. In fact, all of the commands in 1 Corinthians 11 also have a corporate nature to them, except for one. And we'll look at that one in just a few moments. But I think we need to be reminded that in this individualistic culture that we live, that God has designed the church body to function together, to worship together, to grow together, to use our gifts together, to serve one another, to love one another. We look at 1 John chapter 4, and I just want to really briefly talk about what I think the importance of us understanding the togetherness of the church and how the Lord's Supper does that. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And then in verse 10, he says, Here it is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the first thing that happens, and I think this is important, the first thing that happens is that he points to the love of Christ for us and says, Here is your definition of love. Love is Christ giving himself to be the propitiation, the substitute for your sins. And then, in verse 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. This, what we're doing today, remembering the sacrifice of Christ, should not only drive us to worship and praise him more, but it should drive us to see his amazing love for us and then love each other well. That's what Christ commanded. He says in John 13, 35, by this one thing, all men shall know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I feel like it's probably a pretty important thing for us to do. So the first thing, gather together in unity and fellowship with Christ and with one another. The second thing is remember his sacrifice for us. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. God wants us to remember the sacrifice. Remember the body that was given and broken. Remember the perfect and precious blood of Christ that was shed. Do you think about the cross when you come to the Lord's Supper? Do you think of what it means for the creator of the universe who spoke everything that we see into existence that he's now being nailed to a tree he created by sinful men and women, men that he created? That he endured so much physical pain and agony and suffering 
in your place because of your sins, because of my sins. We are meant to remember this sacrifice. This is not a martyr dying for his cause. The cross was a savior dying for my sin and for yours. Let's not miss that today. So remember a sacrifice for sin. And in light of that, we do the third thing. We examine our own lives. And here we find the only individual command given at the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28, Paul writes, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. See, this is the thing that we're meant to do as individuals. All the rest of it, the giving of thanks, the hoping, the, the worshiping, all of that we do corporately together. But this is what you got to do. Examine your life. He warns them then that they should not partake unworthily because there are actually some people in the church that are sick and some that have died of the judgment of God because they have abused and misused the Lord's table. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, 31, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And I think there's a warning. Take, take care of what's going on in your life because if you don't, God is going to be a loving parent and he will. And so judge yourself. God did this because he knows our nature. He knows that if we are not commanded to self-reflect and self-examine, we would rarely, if ever, do it. See, we human beings, we are naturally built to judge other people, right? We're very good at that. If you want, if you want to know what I think your problem is, I am happy to tell you. <laughs> but it's a hard thing for us to stop and look at our own lives honestly and see what's going on there. We are masters of self-justification. Even the, the small sins and the imperfections in our lives, we find reasons for them, excuses for them. We wouldn't do that if it wasn't for so-and-so. If only my circumstances were different, I wouldn't have this fault in my life. But then we judge others with the harshest judgment we can think of. It, it, we really do this poorly, this self-examination thing. And so we are commanded to come together and to look and remember the sacrifice of Christ and then to think deeply about our own lives. Is there sin that I'm tolerating in my life? Am I finding entertainment in sin? The sin that put Christ on the cross? The sin that our, our God hates so much? The sin that was so serious that the only substitute that was available was the blood of his son? How could I take enjoyment in that? How could I continue into that? The answer is we justify ourselves. And so reflect on your own life. Stop blaming your moral deficiencies on other people. Start taking some kind of responsibility. The, the glorious thing about this truth is that as we begin to attempt to clean up our lives, as we begin to attempt to live more like Christ, the Spirit of God who is working in us empowers us to do what we can never do ourselves. Do you understand that when Christ died, we've talked about him dying for the penalty of our sin, but he also died 
so that we can have power and victory over sin in our lives. And I'm not saying that someday you're going to walk away from here and, yeah, you examined yourself and now you're going to be perfect. That's not going to happen this side of heaven. But we should be becoming more and more like our Savior one day after another. And when we fall, we should be getting back up and pursuing him once again. Examine your life. Be honest. And then let us wash our hands and cleanse our hearts and come back in right relationship with our Savior. And so we gather together, we remember his sacrifice, we examine our own lives, and then finally, we hope for the day when we feast with him in glory. Jesus mentions that this will be the last time he partakes of the fruit of the vine before enjoying it with them again in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. As we participate in the Lord's Supper today, understand that what we're doing is not only pointing back and remembering, but it's pointing forward to the fact that we believe that this is just a foreshadow of the feast to come. Amen. Right? That we are here today, and when we're doing this, we're saying that we don't think this is the end. That we think his death accomplished more than just a martyr dying on the cross, but it provided the hope for us forever. And it's a witness to one another and to the world around us. Just like the Passover pointed forward to the cross, this meal points forward to the coming kingdom of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so believers here, from all walks of life, gather together as one to partake in the foreshadow of what the kingdom will be like with believers from all over the world, from all walks of life and all generations partaking together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we participate today, know that this Lord's Supper puts you one closer to that day. I don't know how many are left. I don't think anybody knows how many are left, so stop pretending you do know. Okay? But it, it, it is exciting to think this is one less. And so before I ask the men to come forward and to pray, uh, I want to read you a paragraph. It was written by the Puritan theologian in the 1600s named Thomas Watson. And this is what he said about the Lord's Supper. He says, Has Christ provided such a banquet for us? He has. Let us then... Study to respond to this great love of Christ. We have the banquet. Let us study. Let us do this right. Let us be active in trying to respond properly to this banquet. He says, it is true. We can never parallel his love. Yet, let us show ourselves thankful. We can do nothing satisfactory, but we may do something out of gratitude. Christ gave himself as a sin offering for us. Let us give ourselves as a thank offering for him. If a man redeems another out of debt, will he not be grateful? How deeply do we stand obliged to Christ who has redeemed us from hell? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for these reminders. Lord, I know that most people here, they, they know 
what the Lord's Supper is about. And for those that don't, Lord, I pray that that for maybe the first time they would think more deeply and that we would take this time to remember the sacrifice of Christ and to examine ourselves. And then I pray that this service would fill us with hope of the expectation of eternity with Christ in heaven. I pray you'd be glorified in these moments together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.